2: It's film week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us for our first film week of 2023. And I'm joined by critics Wade Major and Christy Lemire. First up is the sci fi horror film Megan. It stars Allison Williams, Violet McGraw, and Amy Donald. The film is directed by Gerard Johnstone and written by Akela Cooper. Wade, what did you think of Megan, which, by the way, has the number three replacing the E in Megan?
3: Yeah, that'll be really confusing. Um, you, You know what? January movies, you just have to kind of wrap yourself around the fact that this is the worst weekend of the year. So go in with low expectations. And I went in with low expectations, really already expecting this to be terrible. And it's actually quite funny. Uh, So I was pleasantly surprised. Is it boilerplate? Yes. It draws on all prior entries in the genre from Frankenstein to 2001, right on up to, you know, all the other to Chucky and uh, all the other evil doll episodes of Twilight Zone and evil (laughs) doll movies. You know, we we've had evil dolls up to our eyeballs. So yeah, it draws on all of that stuff this time. It's basically about a, a woman who uh, invents uh, an AI doll for her niece who has lost her parents. And she's now the guardian of her niece. And this is the way that she's going to try to you know fix their relationship. But of course, you know, Megan is Frankenstein or the Frankenstein monster and uh, develops uh, an agenda of her own. But but they play it very tongue in cheek. So it's not as funny as it probably should be or could be, but it is awfully funny. And that's where I took some some solace.
2: Christy, what did you think of Megan?
1: I love this movie so much. I had the absolute best time. I went in with High Host because the trailer looked insane and it actually exceeded all my expectations um, because there is so much else going on in here that you have to experience. There are musical interludes. There are crazy things that Megan does and I laughed hysterically the whole way through. It's a horror comedy. Having said that, it's not really all that frightening, but it is legitimately tense from time to time in that you wonder how far will this doll go? Um, She's physically played by Amy Donald and then the voice is Jenna Davis. And the voice work here is so perfect because there's like a a snarkiness and a judgmental nature to it that nobody else, like the humans, don't recognize, but we, of course, see. And we see from the very beginning as the doll is being created, like the slight side eye or like the narrowing of her eyes. And you can see from the very beginning, like, oh, no, she's going to think for herself and it's not going to be good. I love the character design on this because she does look like an evil Olsen twin. Like if Chucky were an Olsen twin, that is what Megan looks like. And they they play with that in ways that are so disarming. Like she kind of fits within the world. She's like a life-size being, but there's an awkwardness to the way she moves quite frequently that is so disturbing and so off-putting. And this movie knows exactly what it is in the way that like snakes on a plane knew exactly what it was. Like it threads that needle so perfectly. Please go see this in a theater with people. This has to be experienced in a crowd. You will laugh. It's the best movie of
2: 2023. <laughs> wow. Uh Megan in wide release starring Allison Williams the voice of Jenna Davis. Gerard Johnstone directed, Akela Cooper the screenwriter, rated PG-13. January 6th, a documentary that's streaming on Discovery Plus. Uh, the film is directed by Gideon Nodet and Jules Nodet, who are brothers. Christy, what did you think of January 6th, the film?
1: It, it's excellent, and it's necessary, and I hope that folks tune in. I, I know it seems like a, a daunting prospect to have to relive all of that, and so much of the imagery here is so immediate like right on that line of where the Capitol police are are struggling against the the protesters, the insurrectionists. And it, a lot of it is stuff we haven't seen before. And you'll find your heart racing all over again and your breath quickening. And it's, it's tough to watch, but it's urgent and it's so necessary. We've seen several documentaries that have gone back and looked at what happened on this awful, awful day. You guys talked about this place rules a couple of weeks ago, I believe, which was more of like a, uh, embedding with the QAnon people. Um, but this feels definitive. This gets his arms around a lot. And it has a really impressive array of interviews with everyone from Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Jamie Raskin, Adam Kinzinger, and then people on their staff talking about what they were doing, how they were holding up and trying to protect themselves. To um, Capitol Police Commanders and um, DC Metropolitan Police Commanders talking about how they struggled that day. And it really, like, beat by beat, does a TikTok of what happened all throughout the day. And it's incredibly moving and really necessary to watch on this second anniversary of the day. Um, You see people who clearly have told their stories over and over again, but and yet they, They still break down at at a crucial moment, reliving what it was like to have to call your, your children or your spouse for perhaps the last time, you know, having to hold on to all of that emotion and then there's the release of it. So it's really, really exceptionally well done.
2: We're talking about the documentary January 6th. And for this second year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol, CNN has a special airing of the film Saturday at five o'clock Pacific time. That's Saturday evening, five o'clock Pacific, and it's streaming on an ongoing basis on the Discovery Plus service. Wade, what did you think of, of the documentary January 6th?
3: Yeah, I largely agree, although I don't I don't think it's definitive. I don't really think that we will or can get something definitive for many, many, many years. I mean, there's there, you know, I've seen a few of these, not a lot, and they and there's a bit of a Rashomon experience in watching them and you're like, did you all see the same thing or experience the same thing and they all sort of go in different directions. The Noday brothers are very legit. They made the documentary 9/11 in 2002. They were there in Lower Manhattan, so they have experience. As objective observers, and I think they they try to do something as objective as possible, but it's it's still so polarized that that half the voices here are, are are partisan voices. But they also get journalists, French journalists, and and this one guy who was there as a documentarian, and they they really contribute some very very compelling testimony. Lots of footage here that I had never seen before. I don't think anybody else has seen before. So I don't, I don't, you know, I think it leaves, for me at least, it left more questions than, than it answered, you know, who and what and why it's sort of a a starting point for further inquiry and discussion. But as such, I think it is a valuable contribution to a corpus that will continue to grow and and hopefully will become less partisan and, and, and more, um, yeah, more consolidated over time.
2: January 6th, the documentary is unrated on Discovery Plus streaming service, Saturday afternoon, 5 o'clock, airing on CNN. The documentary, The Hatchet-Wielding Hitchhiker, tells the story of Kai McGilvery. Uh, the film is directed by Colette Camden. Wade?
3: Gosh, what a disturbing thing this is, and especially for those of us who are part of the media because you know, we've seen the direction that all of this has gone. I mean, this is this is a, a story that that I was not party to, but a lot of people that it went viral, this guy, just kind of a dude, uh, the, you know, the the hit the we, the hitchhiker, right? And he stopped what would could otherwise have been a, a murder where he had hitchhiked with a guy who ran into a construction worker and then uh, he used his hatchet, which he was carrying around for some reason, to to get the guy off. And he becomes a celebrity, becomes a YouTube celebrity. And then it takes a darker turn as you start to investigate what, who he is, what his background is, how mentally well is he, and there is a crime that he winds up being involved in, uh, which you know changes the entire nature of his celebrity. And the question is, You know, are we are we overlooking our duty as journalists and are we are we as spectators putting aside our critical thinking just to enjoy the rush of Internet celebrity? Are we turning life into into a game and and uh, and not asking these critical questions of people that that we're turning into heroes who maybe we shouldn't be turning into heroes? It's a it's a pretty it's a pretty tough film to watch once it starts uh, putting you into that position.
2: The hatchet-wielding hitchhiker starts streaming on Netflix next Tuesday. Christy.
1: Yeah, it is very sad in that it's clear to us as viewers pretty early on that this is somebody who is You know, suffering from some trauma, suffering from some mental illness is not getting the help that he needs. He is this, as Wade said, like this kind of happy-go-lucky nomad. Um, And then this one split second, this one interview he does with this local TV reporter turns him into an instant celebrity, and it's really an indictment of the machinery that gloms on to people like this right and so you have a producer who had worked with the kardashians before you have a guy who worked for jimmy kimmel who is sent on an assignment to track down this guy and bring him to us and people might want to tell themselves that they have altruistic motives but they don't everyone wants a piece of the glory even the the local tv news reporter who first interviews this guy kind of gets off on the gatekeeper role of it. Like I'm the only one who has his email and we're friends now. And I want to help present all these possible offers to him. Everyone is telling themselves like, oh, it's going to be a really great show. Oh, it's going to be a really great segment. But nobody stops to think like, is this wise? And is this somebody that we should be elevating to these heights of heroism? And then, uh, you know, you, you find out his backstory and And again, that's all kind of nebulous, too, because so many of his years have been on the road and so much is unknown about him. Um, It's very sad. A lot of movies have explored the the nature of instant viral fame. There's a Nick Bilton documentary about people who all want to become influencers and how ugly and how much of a grind that is and how unglamorous that is. And this kind of explores an even darker side of that. Because think about it, whenever there's somebody who becomes famous through a meme or through some act of heroism, you dig a little deeper and there's always more of a story there. And that is what this cautionary tale is telling us.
2: The hatchet-wielding hitchhiker on Netflix rated TV-MA directed by Colette Camden and it starts streaming Tuesday of next week. The Invisible Extinction, a documentary that's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica and streaming on Apple TV, the film directed by Stephen Lawrence and Sarah Shank. Wade
3: yeah, pretty straightforward advocacy cinema, but I, uh, they do a better job than usual in actually backing up uh, all of the, the, the claims and the contentions. It's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the study of microbiology, and it, it goes in very depth, deep with all of these various microbiologists who contend that we have been overusing um, antibiotics and that the overuse of antibiotics is destroying the natural kind of inner ecology whereby the microbes and our gut health and all of that keeps us healthy, keeps our weight down, and, and and that we need to reevaluate how we use antibiotics. Not get rid of them, but reevaluate how we use them and to what degree and so that we can sort of restore a lot of the natural health that we've lost during this period. We've, we've overdone it. And it goes into everything from elective C-sections to autism and, and a whole range of things, weight gain and weight loss, and all kinds of areas that are all tied to having a microbial balance in your gut and an, a microbial balance in your foods and in your life. And, uh, it gets a little scary when it, you know, as everything does, when it touches on China, because China uses and overuses antibiotics 10 times more than we do. And so no matter what we, the rest of the world does, whatever China is doing is impacting the rest of the world. So there is a real, you know, when it says the invisible extinction, there's a little bit of hyperbole to that title but it is conveying an urgency to something that that is invisible to us as we focus on all kinds of other issues, climate and other things that are political and COVID and so forth. We need to focus on some of these things, too. This should be a much higher priority than it is. And to that extent, even though there are no contrary voices here, again, I think it's a great conversation starter and a really important film for people to see, especially... For those who may have nonverbal autistic children,
2: Rutgers microbiologist Gloria Dominguez Bello and Martin Blazer uh, are the featured scientists in The Invisible Extinction. And Wade, I, I wonder, you know, so often a documentary like this, you kind of get a lot of talking heads. Are, were they able with the visuals to, to make it compelling?
3: Yeah and and on that latter point there is a story of this this nonverbal autistic boy in China and his mom which they they are able to follow to to a pretty good degree and some of the other stories they actually follow to a reasonable degree as well so there's more than just talking heads they actually in, embed themselves in certain situations and and uh, and you see some of these that's where it's strong is that some of these lives and some of these situations actually do evolve through through some constructive changes mm. over the course of the film.
2: The Invisible Extinction, directed by Stephen Lawrence and Sarah Shank, is streaming on Apple TV+, and you can see it in Santa Monica at Lemley's Monica Film Center. Coming up, we'll hear from Christy and Wade about Landlocked, a horror science fiction film, and the Spanish movie Alcaraz. That's all coming up on Film Week. Also, I'll be talking with Kristen Lopez author of the new Turner Classic Movies book, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films? You won't want to miss that coming up later this hour. Back with more Critics Reviews in just one minute. It's Film Week on KPCC, and if you just tuned in and say to yourself, ah, I missed the biggest films of the week and their reviews, don't despair, because the full hour of Film Week's available wherever you get your podcasts at kpcc.org. by telling your smart speaker to play Film Week on KPCC. I'm joined this week by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series and Wade Major of Synagogues.com. Next up is the horror sci-fi film Landlocked. It stars Mason Owens, Jeffrey Owens, Seth Owens, and Paul Owens, who are all of the same family, Paul Owens is the writer-director of the movie. Christy, please tell us about Landlocked.
1: They're all here. All the Owens are here. (laughs) Name an Owen, and they're involved with this film. So this is a really interesting and really ambitious, very low-budget hybrid of a film here. It is based on actual home movies from this Owens family, so it's sort of got a documentary element to it, but then there's a fictionalized story that the writer-director, Paul Owens, has crafted around these images. So Mason Owens is a young man who is summoned back to his childhood home, this dilapidated house in kind of a quiet, rustic suburb. And the house is going to be torn down. And he's told that he has to come there and, you know, see if there's anything left that he wants to take before the whole place is, is torn down. And one of the things he finds is this really old video camera, like a big, clunky, like VHS tape camera. And as he looks through the viewfinder and points it at different places in the yard, in the home, actual images from his childhood appear before him in the viewfinder. And he can go to specific places and times by looking through the camera and revisiting it. So it's sort of like camcorder time machine here and uh, it's a really clever idea and i wish it were tighter i because it's labeled as a horror movie it's not really a horror movie there isn't anything really frightening about it it's more nostalgic than anything else i guess there's some tension as to oh gosh what's he going to find here oh gosh what's he going to find there but i'm i'm really impressed with the execution of this idea um, it's, you know, Paul Owens is Mason Owens' brother, so he also shows up, and they have some exchanges and, and reminisce about the past. And another brother shows up, the dad's in some of these videos, and so you're sort of waiting around for something shocking to happen, something catastrophic to happen, and it never really does. It's an interesting exploration of nostalgia, and I like the nugget of an idea here. I just wish it had been Executed with a little more, I don't know, panache, oomph, something.
2: Yeah, uh, and Landlocked uh, also, uh, you know, this actual house where, where Owens grew up, uh, and as Christy was saying, these are all Owens family members in the film. Wait, what did you think of Landlocked?
3: Hey boy, it worked for me as a horror film. I, uh, I got chills, and and that doesn't happen to me often. I resent. The usual horror tropes, the loud crash sound effects, the, the the boo cuts, the stuff that's designed to sort of get to you on a visceral level, as opposed to on a psychological level, to really, really get inside your brain, which this did for me. I haven't gotten chills watching a film since I, since Carnival of Souls. And so this works for That'll me on it. a similar <laughs> level. Oh, yeah. And and I wouldn't even say this is like a low-budget or a no-budget movie. It's almost like a negative-budget movie. They took four years to make this, from 2014 to 2018, and then four more years to get this thing even remotely distributed. So this has been almost a decade for these brothers to get this movie out there. And it really is. It's a fascinating meta thing. You know, this is a a fictitious Owens family home movie that uses their own family home movies from the past and um nothing like this has ever been done and nothing like this will ever be done again but it's very it's a it's an ingenious concept the fact that most of the film is mason owens alone in a spooky house with the camera and no dialogue very sparse dialogue i mean it's 72 minutes of a guy wandering around a house and, and going through progressively spookier and spookier situations. And it is a bit of a ghost movie. That's where it gets chilling. And uh, it leaves some of that stuff, leaves that scratch a little bit, uh, uh, not, uh, that itch a little bit unscratched. So I, I think it's a very, very impressive film, especially considering the parameters under which it was made. And I, I hope these guys get uh, a bigger shot because they've put a decade of their lives into this thing. It it, it it should pay off.
2: Wait, do do we know where the house is located? New Jersey. Okay. Landlocked is the film written and directed by Paul Owens, starring Mason Owens and other members of the Owens family. It's available for on-demand viewing and on digital. It's unrated. The official uh, Spanish uh, entry for Academy Award Best International Feature Consideration is the movie Alcaraz. Uh, It's set in Catalonia, directed by Carla Simon, who co-wrote the screenplay. Wade, what did you think of Alcaraz?
3: Boy, well, it is it, you know this uh, this won the the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. It is a very impressively made film, but it is a little bit of a drudgery, and I and I don't know that that's avoidable. It's sort of the the, the plague of the subject matter sometimes, um, and it's an interesting topic, which is that it, as as these solar farms move in, they begin to push out these local peach farmers. So, solar farms—it's a clash between local farming and and family farms and trying to migrate the uh, the this particular part of spain to a green economy and and that's a clash that doesn't have an obvious moral side to it it that's the compelling drama of it but at the same time it's shot in a very very verite way kind of a Darden brothers way um which brings the people to life in a very vibrant way it brings their lifestyles to life but i don't know that there is a whole lot in the in the struggle of catalonian peach farmers that is going to necessarily captivate a broader audience. So it's um, unless that really, really is a compelling subject and a compelling world to you, it's a little bit hard to engage emotionally.
2: It's too bad because I mean this is a topic on air talk we deal with quite frequently, and that is the environmental trade-offs that are involved with large-scale renewable energy, and what that can mean for wildlife habitat, and and I mean it sounds like here it's it's more of a direct economic. Competition issue, but there are a number of these kinds of trade-off issues that are very complex and and have a lot of dramatic potential.
3: Yeah, I mean, it 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 could have been handled in a more melodramatic way, which would have made it more commercial, and then you're not really serving the topic very well. So I, you know, I don't mean to be critical of the film. I think it's a very fine film. I just think it's kind of. Uh, it's nudged ideologically and artistically into, an, into a sort of an awkward corner if it wants to travel to a, li- a wider audience.
2: Uh, the film, again, uh, set in Catalonia, is uh, Alcaraz from director and co-writer Carla Simon. The film is in Catalan and Spanish with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, Lemley's Glendale, and it is streaming on the Mubi service starting in the middle of February. Uh, Mars One, a Brazilian drama that's written and directed by Gabriel Martins. Wade.
3: This is a beautiful family portrait. Uh, this it's, it takes place during the period when Bolsonaro was elected in Brazil. This is the Brazilian submission for the Oscar. I don't know if it, it's up against some pretty heavy competition, but it's a it's a very very touching film. It's just it's a beautiful humanistic portrait of a family that is undergoing many changes at the time that their country is undergoing many many changes, and it deals with culture and sexuality and race and just family relationships. And, uh, you know, Rajan Faria, who who stars in it, is an absolute revelation, just wonderful, wonderful acting. I think it's it's a terrific release for Array, and I hope a lot of
2: people discover it. Mars One is the film. It's in Portuguese with English subtitles, as Wade mentioned, Brazil's official Oscar submission for Best International Feature Consideration. The film is streaming on Netflix and unrated. The Western The Old Way stars Nicholas Cage. It's directed by Brett Donahue and Carl W. Lucas is the screenwriter. Christy, what did you think of The Old Way?
1: Now, this is a January movie. <laughs> when we, talk about, we talk about how January is dumping ground time. Megan looks like a January movie, but it's great. Uh, the old way truly is one. Um, Nicolas Cage—it's his first Western, which is sort of surprising given he's made every kind of movie imaginable. And uh, you think that that would be an exciting prospect for him, but he just kind of moses his way on in and through this movie. Um, he is this retired gunslinger. He had been feared throughout the land. We see in an early scene, you know, him being, you know, undaunted to kill a man in front of his young son. Now, 20 years later, he's a family man. He's got a wife, he's got a little girl who's 12 years old, played by Ryan Kira Armstrong. And he owns the mercantile, and he's trying to have a quiet life. But wouldn't you know that that kid, 20 years later, is now a man and he wants revenge for his daddy's murder. And so he comes with a bunch of very generic bad guys in his posse to take down the fearsome Colton Briggs. Meanwhile, there's also a a group of U.S. marshals on their tail. They're all chasing one another on horseback. It's just so bland. It's just so cheap looking. And like the lighting is always really harsh and flat. There are some very erratic editing choices here. The script is terrible. And yet, like Ryan Kira Armstrong, who was also the young star of the Terrible Firestarter remake that came out last year. She's really good. Like she's got a great presence about her, great poise beyond her years. She's got kind of a young Haley Steinfeld thing going. Um, Nick Searcy, who plays the US marshal is much better than the material. And Nick Cage, like, he's clearly very self-aware of his image. If you saw the unbearable weight of massive talent from last year, like he knows who he is and what he can do. And he just looks so bored here. So bored. And I was as well.
2: All right. This is not Pig then. Um, If only. If only. Yes. (laughs) The terrific uh, film Pig starring Cage from last year. The Old Way, the Western we're talking about. Wade?
3: Yeah. For the 42 people who have lived for 30 years with the, the unanswered question of what would Unforgiven be like if it had been a Nick Cage movie? Here's the answer. This is, it 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 basically is a low budget version of Unforgiven. It's the old revenge Western. Everything that Chrissy just said is spot on. Um, But again, it's a January movie. So I walked in with very low expectations. And uh, I tried to hang my hat on, you know, Nick Cage doing his shtick on Ryan Keir Armstrong, who is wonderful, absolutely wonderful in bad material. I hope she gets good material at some point in her career. Uh, Noel Legros is the is the bad is great. He's James Legros' son. Um, oh. his, his uh, he's Robert Loggia's grandson. You know, so he's got he's got the genes, and he's very intimidating in kind of a, a stereotypical way. Clint Howard left me uh, speechless because it took me two thirds of the movie to realize it was Clint Howard. And you know, <laughs> Nick like like like, um, like Christy said, Nick Searcy really is is acting at a level far above the material. So I mean, look, it's it's a it's 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 exactly what what Christy said it was. It's not great. But there are some, you know, if you if you're bored and you have some time there, there are some things to hang on.
2: The Old Way, directed by Brett Donahue, uh, the film starring Nicolas Cage. It's rated R. It's in select theaters and then available on demand starting Friday of next week. Last Resort, an action thriller starring John Fu and Clayton Norcross, the film written and directed by Jean-Marc Mineo. Wade.
3: Wow, is this a bad movie? This is a January movie. <laughs> So this is a that takes place in in Thailand, shot in Thailand, and it's basically just another one of these totally hack knockoffs of Die Hard, almost to a T. I mean, it follows the Die Hard storyline w- shamelessly. It, it's not even trying to disguise it. John Fu, who's a you know pretty decent action guy, uh, is not well served by the material or the direction here. It's not the the fights are not well staged. It gets it gets surprisingly boring during the action scenes and uh it's so bad that there are typos in the opening titles I, I'm I'm stunned I, I I've never seen that before uh, so I, I I'm just kind of you know I, I watch this thing with with uh, one eye closed uh, just to spare myself the pain uh it, it really it's it's almost unwatchable but if you're a John foo fan mm, Maybe give it about 20 minutes.
2: Last Resort, written and directed by Jean-Marc Maneo, is rated R. It's at Lemley's Glendale Theater, and it's available on demand starting next Tuesday. And, uh, Wade, can you give us a quick thought on Candyland, a horror thriller set in the world of truck stops?
3: Yeah, Candyland is 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 just a horrible, vile film. There's nothing redeeming about it. They they think they're making kind of a throwback, a low budget grindstone slasher horror film with you know sex and religious elements. But I mean, it's it's effectively about uh, truck stop sex workers and how uh, a religious cult is sort of invades their world, and people start dying in horrible, vicious, bloodthirsty ways. There's just nothing redeeming about this. It's it's designed basically to offend and horrify everyone without actually having any thrills or shocks whatsoever.
2: Candyland, starring Olivia Lucardi and Sam Quarton, written and directed by John Swab. It's unrated at the Lumiere Music Hall in Beverly Hills and available on demand. All right, our Film Week critics, Wade and Christy, with us. Coming up, I'm going to be talking with Kristen Lopez, author of the book. But have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films? It's a Turner Classic movie book. We'll talk with her in a
4: minute.
2: On KPECC, I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. And I'm joined by Kristen Lopez, author of the new book. But have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films? or in some cases, whole series of films which had books as the source material. Of course, this has been a part of Hollywood from the very beginning, adapting books to film. But what Kristen has done here is taken uh, some of the more interesting stories about those adaptations and sharing them in this new book from Turner Classic Movies and Running Press. Uh, Kristen is TV editor at IndieWire. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for reading the book and having me on. I appreciate it.
2: I, I love how you detail some of the differences between the books and and the films. And it's not always the case that um, the movie is simplified from the book. Sometimes the source material is very thin and, and it really has to be fleshed out for the movie.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to go with adaptations and what I found interesting was taking books that are very short, something like Nella Larson's Passing, which is technically considered a novella, I included it because I like it, Uh, and making a feature-length film out of it or in some cases taking a book that maybe is not that great and throwing out pretty much all of the story and keeping what you want to tell a movie that ends up being more famous than the source material. So, I think a lot of people assume adaptation is very easy because, oh, you have a guide, you have a book. But to look at the books that I read and the movies that resulted from them, there's a lot of different avenues you can take with a book. The book is just the start, which I find really fascinating and I'm sure is a challenge for a lot of screenwriters as it was for pretty much everybody that is included in the book.
2: Let's start, Kristen, with the 1962 film To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, a favorite of audiences, as it was with critics as well when it came out, Robert Mulligan, the director, Horton Foote, a great playwright as well as screenwriter who did the adaptation of Harper Lee's beloved novel. We have the Aaron Sorkin uh, most recent stage adaptation uh, just here in Southern California. So um, share with us some of the challenges Challenges that Foot and Mulligan had in adapting the Lee novel.
5: Yeah, most people don't know. I mean, you read the book in school at some point, but... People forget that when you watch the movie, the movie is really a condensed version of Harper Lee's book. Harper Lee tells more of a series of vignettes in the life of of Scout and her family. There's other characters that show up. There's all other stories that are tangentially connected. The Tom Robinson trial, which is the the crux of the film, is just one part in this really lush examination of the town and. Foote and and, uh, Mulligan had to condense a lot of that to create a cogent narrative that an audience was going to follow. And the easiest way to do that was to take the Tom Robinson trial and make it the centerpiece of this really amazing exploration about racism and that was really progressive for the 1960s but i think to read the book it's also really progressive in how harper lee is approaching it because there's a lot more discussion specifically about calpurnia's relationship which is their um their housemaid who lives with with the um Atticus Finch and his children.
2: Which Sorkin tried to include in the yeah. uh, new adaptation for stage.
5: And there's really, really interesting that I'm sure, you know, Harper Lee didn't even realize when she was writing it at the time, that feels very progressive today, where the kids are realizing their own privilege as white children, going out into situations where they're they're noticing this difference. And it's far more about Scouts coming of age and realizing that she is walking through this world where people are presented as different. There's this hierarchy. It's really fascinating to watch the movie, which is a fantastic movie. I love it so much. But to read the book... There's so much more there. Takes
2: me back, because like so many, I read it in school, as many of us did. We're talking with Kristen Lopez, author of But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films from Turner Classic Movies. And you have both... My favorite science fiction film and my favorite horror film in here. Really? My favorite horror is the Robert Wise adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, the great nineteen sixty-three black and white film The Haunting that I've seen so many times, which suggests horror as opposed to explicitly depicting it. An invasion of the body snatchers, my favorite science fiction film, which has what, been made four times? Several times. We've had
5: we've had male characters as our main character. We've had women. It's one that's utilized so many different avenues to look at that that very small Jack Finney story.
2: Well, and and in horror, generally, one of the big challenges is how do you recreate the sort of sense of the book yeah. in doing it on, on the screen? And one of the things that I love about Wise's The Haunting is it's like all mood.
5: Yeah, it really is. And the Shirley Jackson novel is far more psychological. The And that's a challenge for a screenwriter, I'm sure, because you have to present a horror film where there is something to be scared of. Whereas Shirley Jackson's whole conceit with the novel is the horror is... is being a woman and the psychological fears of growing old and isolation and loneliness that is really hard to adapt, especially for an audience in the 1960s where you're watching far more, you know, monsters, the overt monstrousness. Um, and, and even something like invasion of the body snatchers where you have a story that is far more about the loss of innocence of a small town and, and, Personal connections to people, and that translates into you know the 1956 film where it's about anything from either Cold War paranoia to conformity to all sorts of different ways to read that novel, uh, that film. But the novel is really a story about like fathers and sons, and how do you leave your town and then come back to it and oh, realize wow. that everything's different. It's such a different, so different than blend the film. horror. Yeah, yeah, and the horror I think from the original Body Snatchers book is this feeling that like you lose touch with something when you leave home and it's really bizarre to read it and then watch the movie you know I saw the movie first so to read the book afterwards I was like oh we're dealing with a whole blend of fear but it's still about the loss of small town cold war you know fears of Things changing and sit, this, you know, citification of things, uh, and and losing that and small homogenization. town connection. Yeah.
2: We're talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1956 Don Siegel-directed film. Daniel Mainwaring adapted Jack Finney's 1954 book, The Body Snatchers. They're already here. You're next. You're next. The great, great lines, of course, uh, at, at the conclusion of of that uh, film. Uh, Nelson Getting, by the way, who did the adaptation of uh, The Haunting, uh, was a guest speaker at my junior high school. Uh, LeConte in Hollywood. Went, wow. I was a kid. He'd just done the Andromeda Strain at that okay. point. And so I was friends with my teacher and came to, to speak about the book. We're talking with Kristen Lopez of But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films. We're talking on Film Week about some of these. And we have just a, about a minute or so before we break. Carl um, Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, which he wrote and directed. Just a wonderful adaptation of yeah. the Walter. Mosley novel um, about five years after Mosley wrote the book I've I've shown devil in a blue dress at film festivals I've been able to curate just it it's a terrific depiction of early Los Angeles
5: yeah it is and I always get sad when I especially talk about that I feel like we should have had more. Walter Mosley adaptations. I feel like we need more Easy Rollins on the screen. It's not I'm too late. Yeah. It's not too late. I'm surprised that the movie was successful. Mm-hmm. How did we not greenlight a million more of these movies? Because to look at the private eye genre from the black perspective in that time period. It's amazing. Well, and,
2: and, and of course, for Don Cheadle, it was his yeah. breakout performance as Mouse yeah. in Devil in a Blue Dress. We'll continue our conversation with Kristen Lopez, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films? She took six months and read all of those books and then wrote about them in this new Turner Classic Movies book, We'll continue our conversation with her momentarily. Great to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Just a reminder, if you missed any of our critics' reviews this week or any portion of my conversation right now, you can hear all of it wherever you get your podcasts. Film Week is available to you. You can also tell your smart speaker to play Film Week and you can hear all about this week's program. I'm joined now by Kristen Lopez, author of But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films. Uh, some of them are series of films like The Thin Man*. William Powell, Myrna Loy, what incredible chemistry. And I didn't realize till I read uh, your chapter about that series that he was considered too old even for the first film.
5: Yeah, Nick, uh, Nick Charles and, and Nora Charles, I mean, they're iconic now, but it was really a tough sell to get Bill Powell and Myrna Loy into that series because Bill Powell was considered too old, Myrna Loy was considered... Too unbankable. She'd only played exotic characters in films. And W.S. Van Dyke, who was the director of, of the majority of the series, really championed them. He wanted to reunite his cast for Manhattan Melodrama. And we get the iconic pair that we have right now, Which is not like in the novel where Nick is actually a Greek character. He actually is a Greek immigrant with a totally, Charles is an Anglicized name. And I thought that was really fascinating that Dashiell Hammett creates kind of an immigrant story where The divide between Nick and his wife isn't just money, but it's the fact that he has had this immigrant experience and she's salt of the earth, you know, from America, born and raised. And there's this added element of he's the ultimate outsider who is investigating the wealthy and turning up all their dirty laundry.
2: Well, and, and you point out that in Hammett's books that um, it's it's almost like it's stage-bound. It's almost like it's a play. The locations are so limited, and the movie opens that all up.
5: The movie does. The famous final sequence at the dinner party that nick arranges to reveal who the killer is in the original film is not in the book it's actually a story that he tells later on to nora they just sit down on the couch and he fills her in on everything that has happened not nearly as exciting as the dinner party that is in the movie but hammett's whole thing was people want a clear way to know how the mystery unfurls and i think the film version is really fun even though the Plots are kind of convoluted, not nearly as convoluted as something like a Raymond Chandler, but the, it's a great t- way to divide the book and the film in terms of taking a mystery and creating just enough complexity for an audience while making it exciting by opening up the locations and the characters and all of that.
2: What did, what did Hammond think of the film adaptation? I mean, obviously he, he would enjoy the money that came from it, but did he feel that it, it was fair to his books?
5: He didn't really care for it. He did try to craft other Nick and Nora stories. This was the only Thin Man novel that he ever wrote. He did work a little bit on After the Thin Man, which was the sequel the first sequel to the thin man stories in 1936 I believe don't quote me on that uh but he wasn't really able to get the feel for screenwriting almost like F Scott Fitzgerald didn't really understand the screenwriting world and after the second film he just threw his hands up and said he was done with it so he didn't have a lot of participation in in any of the movies uh which might have been to his you know A good thing, because I think the movies end up taking Nick and Nora down some really interesting avenues that might have been hampered had we had more books and we had a backstory for them. And,
2: of course, those films really, what they really rose on was the chemistry of the two stars. Yeah. They just, that magnetism, and you don't know that till... Until you see it on screen.
5: Exactly. And the book is very different. It's it almost feels like a pre-code type of film. Even though the original film came out it in is 1934, isn't it? it's more pre-code in the novel. There's okay. a lot more overt drug use, uh, you know, philandering, there's adultery in the novel that they, they had to kind of make these characters palatable for an audience you're not going to really want nick to help you know nice uh maureen o'sullivan if she's dating a married man so they took out some of that uh left
2: the drinking in.
5: left the drinking in which is great but there's certainly something to hear nick charles when you're reading the book talking about drug use that is very you get taken aback a little bit by it when you first read it you're like what
2: We're talking with Kristen Lopez, but have you read the book 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films from Turner Classic Movies? Uh, We talked about books that have generally come rather quickly after their source materials, but Clueless, uh, the Amy Heckerling film, is based on Emma, the Jane Austen novel of, uh, you know, 180 years prior. So um, Clueless, just a wonderfully funny just terrific, you know, setting then-present-day Beverly Hills of that same story.
5: Yeah, modernized Jane Austen novels are really interesting. We saw it recently, you know, Fire Island adapted Pride and Prejudice. And the Emma the Emma adaptation is so fascinating because Clueless has become so ubiquitous with the 90s and teenagerdom that many people forget that it's actually based on this, you know— Comedy of manners. And to read the book and to watch the movie it's a testament to the script because it does get the minutia of the original novel down whether that's the dynamic between Emma and Harriet which is essentially the share and tie relationship in that movie or some of the the little intrigues that happen it shows you how you can take a book that is so synonymous like british countryside and translate it and show that the shenanigans of high school life are pretty much the new form of that which I thought was amazing and i I love I love both equally
2: we should talk about dune because there is a story you know extremely difficult to bring to the screen um, and we have Denny Villeneuve's um, 2021 uh, adaptation of Frank Herbert's book. There was, you know, the previous one that was done by David Lynch that has its fans, but uh, more mixed reviews, I would say. So, how do you compare the most recent Dune with the novel?
5: It's, I have to consider the fact that the movie is only half of the original Frank Herbert book. So, we still have the second half, which Which I think is in production. Which is in production. It's coming out this year, I believe. And it's, Really, when you get into the political elements and all of the different sci-fi things that I think a lot of people were hoping were going to be showing up in the the first novel, all of that comes to bear. They're really putting the plot-heavy elements in this second movie. The first movie's all set up, you know, introducing Paul Atreides and the landscape of Arrakis, and it's really only, Incredible I think, effects. the first, you know, 20-some-odd chapters. So there's a lot more story to tell, and— I kind of am surprised that Villeneuve just said, you know, not even going to try to adapt the whole book. I'm just going to stop at this part and the audience will clearly continue to come for the second half. So I'm eager to see how he navigates all of this dense storytelling and language. You know, there's there's so many elements of Herbert's novel where he's inventing words and in the first film the audience just kind of had to roll with that and be like I don't really know what this word means but I know the intent so that's a lot more denser and complicated in the second half so he's got his work cut out for him
2: so many films 52 of them that are included in Kristen's book and uh, ones we didn't have a chance to talk about Psycho True Grid*, Clockwork Orange If Beale Street Could Talk The Great Gatsby Coraline, Goodfellas, The Silence of the Lambs, The Joy Luck Club, Jurassic Park. The list goes on and on and on. Just real quickly, how how did you decide on 52?
5: It was hard. My long list was easily 150 books. I read a lot for fun. And I had to really find stuff that people have seen the movies clearly, but that they would also want to read the books because... It's a different process to read something than to watch something. So I think picking popular stuff that people know of, you know, and they're, they're interested in.
2: Thank you, Kristen. Thank we you. appreciate it. The book is available for pre order, not quite out yet on shelves. But have you read the book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films, Kristen Lopez. Thanks so much for joining us on Air Talk. From all of us, have a terrific weekend. It's impossible tell you right now if
0: I tried The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.